From Hong Kong, this is Maya Kupa, the Lessons Learned from Startup podcast, based on the Postmodern Conference, where founders, investors, lawyers, and mentors share their stories about working on, with, or for startups. Today, we have Remy Caron. He's a well-known technical advisor. He's the former CIO of the Telegraph Media Group, the CTO of the New Motion Startup, and CTIO now from Versa, a, a local uh, startup in the Netherlands that's doing uh, travel-related solutions. So welcome, Remy. Thank you, Jeff. Good to be here. Remy, how did you make your way into startups? Because you were a technical solution, network solution guy, right? Yep. So... Um... I found my way into the startup world basically in Hong Kong, to be honest, uh, when, when our mutual friend Stephen Forte was doing an accelerator in, in Hong Kong and he invited me over uh, together with Richard Campbell to come visit and, and, and check out the operation and check out the startup world, how that was evolving uh, around the, uh, the notion of Eric Ries with the Lean Startup and, and that, that movement back in the day. And uh, I, I was immediately grabbed by the, uh, by the dynamics of that scene, by the enthusiasm of the people, by uh, the almost liberating way of starting a business, I would say. So I, I came back from the, I came at the era where you had piles and piles of documents and, and, and spreadsheets to prove that your business was anything, anything but viable. Uh, so uh, that was that was quite liberating, and and that's also where we met, uh, Jeff, in, in that in that era. Correct. And how how was it for you as a as a technical person, indeed, to to see that there is something like going out and validate uh, hypothesis before you start coding anything? Um, I actually um, that was one of the liberating things. It was so because normally you would start. Uh, writing code immediately and, and working on, 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 on the big on the big picture, um, never really realizing that validating before you start could actually be beneficial. Um, so the um, one of the eye openers, I think, was actually the whole validation point. You got an idea. Uh, before you do anything else, you validate whether or not the idea has, has legs. Uh, for the intended target audience. Um, and this is also where you do the most amazing discoveries that either your idea is, is quite valid and, and you, you can start building something very small to, to further test it, um, or it's, it's crap and you need to scratch it and you need to, you need to go back to the drawing board, or you're onto something that uh, with some pivots might actually turn into something. So it's... Um, yeah, so it, it's actually quite eye-opening that before you start spending a tremendous amount of hours and resources and so forth uh, to gain knowledge of the idea before you actually start spending money, uh, be believing in uh, believing in the dream that you that you came up with. So it is um, it's one of the transitions that is most likely the biggest. But also, uh, I caught on to that quite quickly and, and saw the value of doing that and, and never looked back since. While you were doing that, uh, when you were see seeing that, and, and uh, of course, at that point, you had, a uh, say, a, a corporate job. Yep. 
what changed for you at that point also for uh, next ventures that you went into uh, uh, from that moment on? Because I can understand that your perspective of just being the, the technical guy and more into uh, the business side of it and, and the validation of it. What were you at that point looking for when you were going into uh, your next challenge because I, I also know that you do a lot of uh, advising currently you're working for a startup what made you at that point you, you can find it interesting but what made you really uh, consider start working for a startup because you you can find it uh, interesting and you can find uh, you can resonate with it but it doesn't mean that you want to give up your comfy corporate job and jump into startups right so um, I've always been entrepreneurial by heart so all the corporate lineups that i've done always were from my own uh, company so i was but i was always done interim um jobs at, at larger firms but also at smaller firms um one of the things that i what i what i did is i i took the, the line of thinking and and the attitude if you will from the startup scene also into the corporate world and uh, because the same problems uh, or the, if you want to call it, refer to it as a problem, the, the, the same line of thinking, and maybe even more so, exists in the corporate world. So they start building ideas they have immediately because they have the resources, they got the IT people sitting around. Um, but the funny part is that everybody inside those companies is fighting for resources because they all have great ideas and they all want to uh, get started with, with those great ideas and start building them. So there's a huge claim on the IT department as a whole, which makes them scarce by definition, right? So the the, the same issue you have there. So if you in, then insert startup thinking as in, okay, <clears throat> the idea sounds great, but let's validate. And, and validating it from a corporate perspective is potentially easier than validating something that doesn't exist yet uh, or is, is really from the ground up because um, corporate life already has a customer base. So validating a new idea or a new plan or a new initiative or a new site or app or whatever it is you want to build is quite easy because you can tap into that existing customer base. Um, so the um, it, it caught on for me immediately and I liked the startup scene because it's uh, you got a little bit more freedom, right? Uh, also, you got you got more scarcity. Right, money is scarce. Resources are tight. Uh, hours in a day are limited. Uh, even even though you, you you can you can work as, as much as you can, but still, there's there's so much stuff that needs to be done in a startup scene that, that, that there's always seems to be a lack of time. Um, and in the corporate, it's slightly different, but there's another another form of scarcity. So reaching out to the corporate world or the corporates that I worked for at the time, and inserting let's say the startup way of approaching projects within that scene uh, was also quite interesting. And, and also sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't because there are institutions that are, and especially the bigger finance world, uh, that are very reluctant to, uh, to jump into that almost in their eyes, non-steerable way of working, right? There, there's no spreadsheet, there's no plan, there's no milestones. Um, not at the beginning, at least, where people can have "quote unquote" sensible discussions about how that goes in the corporate world. But if you actually do break through, um, you see people start to embrace the, the the different approach to new ideas, plans, apps, or whatever else. Uh, 
And, and it actually also brings speed to normally slower companies because of their size. So, um, and then jumping into the, the startup scene altogether, because currently I'm doing the majority of the things that I do is, is startups, one or two, um, is um, because I enjoy the, enjoy the environment so much more than I really, uh, than, than, the, than the corporate, the old fashioned corporate world, that uh, I, I, in the end, started to lean more towards the startup scene than towards the corporate world. Every now and then, I'm still doing advisory, like you said, uh, for corporate worlds. But usually, um, I, I then start to bring in the, uh, the the startup way of working, and that's also why they now now sort of like recognize me and start to approach me for it. because it's it, it seems very simple to make that transition, but in real life, it is not. Yeah, because I I can understand beside of the fact that that is a changing mindset. There's also a thing as doing uh, corporate uh, gigs then yeah you're relatively secure about about your income but when you're doing a startup then quite often what you said you have constraints when it uh, comes to budget so quite often there's a of course there is a a sweat equity part in it but your yeah your cash flow usually goes down how was it for you to to change that mindset and maybe adapt on the appetite and and how was your uh, environment, friends, family, etc., reacting on that, that you're not going for that comfy corporate world, but then more into like the more insecure, the more riskful endeavors? So let me answer it like this. So if you do what you like, you, you never go to work. And if you do what you like, you are a happy, happier person also in your private life. So... Um, and I'm not saying money is not important, right? Because you need to make a living and you need to pay the mortgage and all that other fun stuff. But like everybody else, I'm not, I'm not uh, born in 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 a bed of money. Uh, I didn't win the lottery, so I, I need to work. For, I need to work for my mortgage, like everybody else. But since work is such a, lar- a large portion of your daily daily endeavor, um, the joy that it gives you and the energy that it gives you prevails for me. So if if you Get to a to a uh, level of income that that satisfies your needs, and and then the rest is being added with with energy or joy or whatever you want to phrase it by the things you you really enjoy doing. I think I think you should you should declare yourself a happy camper in this world. Uh, and could I earn more money when doing corporate gigs? Yeah. Would I be a happier person? The answer is most likely no. And you're you're happier now, but what also did it do with your your mental being, your 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 state of mind? Because quite often, when it comes to mental health, uh, a lot of people are, are talking about that corporate jobs quite comfy, but can be very stressful. But on the other hand, startups can be very stressful because there's a huge risk, and not everybody can handle that risk. So what 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 did it do for you when it comes to your your mental health? To to and, and what do you do to mitigate that? Uh, that risk for yourself and 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 make it more of a of a healthy life for you. Um, 
Well, the, the, the thing is that I, I started my first business when I was 26. So I've always been entrepreneurial. So it, I, I think if, you're not, if you don't have an entrepreneurial spirit by design, you, you most likely shouldn't jump into this world. Um, what I like about the, uh, the, the startup scene and, and, and all the difficulties that come with it is the fact that you need to think from constraints basically every day. And, and constraints vary from time to time. Um, and I strongly believe that that those constraints actually make you creative. And I like that creative process. I like the fact that I don't know uh, how next week is going to look like. If if there is uh, at the end of the budget that you currently have, is is there something worth fighting for? Is there a potential to get additional funding uh, or whatever else you might need, you might run into? Um, and that forces you to be on your toes and creative all the time. And I, I like that adrenaline rush, if you, if you want to phrase it as such, that you're, that you're really pushed to the limit by circumstance and not, and not by, by other um, humanly designed artifacts, so to speak, which is more common in, in, in the corporate world, which, which is there for a reason. So I'm, I'm not trying to bash the corporate world, but, but I think there's a lot to be gained in the corporate world to adapt more of the the, the startup entrepreneurial spirit in, in the way they do their projects with, for them to be more successful as well. So I don't mind the stress. I don't mind the, the, the fact that you don't really know sometimes where this is going. Um, but if, if you don't feel comfortable with that, then this might not be the scene for you. So right. it, it takes a certain mindset, I think, from the people that actually do this in, in, order, in order to deal with the potential stress or discomfort that it might bring in, 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 in other people's lives. Okay. One of your first foray, if I'm correct, into, into startups was working together with me on, uh, on surround app, yeah. uh, the Chinese social media who can, uh, for people who cannot read Chinese. Yeah. How, how was that for you? Just be honest and, and, and straightforward uh, that experience uh, w working with a group of uh, people remotely and being uh, responsible for, uh, for for the technology um so remotely was not necessarily new to me uh, i've done some remote work in, in, in before we met uh, when when we did the uh, outsourcing or nearshoring if you want to phrase research in, in cairo for for customers in the netherlands and so forth um being responsible for technology wasn't necessarily new either. Uh, the startup scene and the way that we approached it uh, was 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 very new to me. So this is where I I, I learned a lot from uh, the setup in in the way you structured the uh, the, the company at the time, the people that were around. The, the <clears throat> I remember I was I I think I, yeah I'm I'm pretty sure I was the oldest one on the team. Even. Uh, and correct. Yeah yeah, by far even. Um, so that was fun. That was that was fun to look at, and and I think the uh, the bigger experience was that basically at the end of it, that this that the conclusion that we draw is that at first it it's, it looked like it kicked off, and then it sort of like flatlined, pretty much, and then we discovered by analysis that the people that actually used the tool was a totally different audience than we expected it to be. Um, and, that, and that was quite funny. So even though we, uh, we did some validation beforehand, throughout the course of, of building the whole thing, we, we made it a totally different discovery than, than we anticipated. I think even for you, that was, that was quite surprising. Uh, and 
No, correct. The other thing is that at then when we discovered that the relative ease with which we sort of like decided to put an end to it uh, without a grudge, without hard feelings, without feeling sorry for ourselves was was to me quite eye-opening in, in, in general. So um, for me, it, I, I think I, I experienced a lot in, in, in the surround up scene, uh, basically a bunch of stuff that you normally would, would experience in one or two startups in or so or a couple of pivots in. So I think we went on a, on a quite a roller coaster that was uh, quite a learning experience from the get-go. Yeah, uh, definitely for me. Like I've, I've been an entrepreneur almost all my working life, but doing like a real like scalable startup in that sense and, and the definition of a, of, of a startup uh, was also for me um, uh, lots of learnings there. Uh, that's correct. And indeed, we, we, we found out that the market and uh, uh, the people who are using it were indeed different. I wrote a, a significant blog post uh, about it. I'll, uh, I'll I'll put that blog post in the, in the show notes for uh, people who want to uh, read more details about it. But then at one point you became the, the CTO of uh, the new motion. Was it a startup? Could you def- define it as a startup? Well, the thing is, I think when I joined the new motion, they were a scale up. If you look at the size of it, if you look at the operations at the time, it was pretty much on the inside, still a a startup, uh, still trying to find uh, the the real target, the real real deal for the new motion as a a player in the uh, the charging station field. So there was a lot of uh, experimenting going on. Basically, all the things that you normally would do in in, in in a startup phase was still going on on the inside. Um, so they kept that mojo of exploring into different angles uh, or side effects that, that played a role in, in, the, in the charging scene at the time. And they were still going at it as a startup. So you could also see it as a mixed bag where the mainstream thing, building the charging station, adding clients to the, to the customer base, doing the clearinghouse functionality and so forth was pretty much established. Um, but they were venturing into other into other areas where where they they still had the, the the startup mojo going, so that that was kind of a mixed bag in that sense, and that that was another great experience to see, because every startup has to dream to become a scale up, and and in the end even wants to become a corporate or a unicorn, uh, by by which you grow into the world where you try to stay away from very 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 far very hard. Um, so everybody has to dream to become the the thing they want to they want to stay away from, which is which is an inter, which is an interesting thing on its own. Um, well, so yeah, well, that, it, that that was some something in the middle, and that that was another that was another thing that then you start to see that the people that were there from the early days might not be the people that you need in the second phase because some of the people are just I'm just going to qualify as startup material. They they just want to do startups all the time by the time it starts to solidify and, and and really gets a direction they lose interest because they are just so creative by heart that they need to they need to stay on that creative path in order to be who they want to be uh, right so then this is where the transition starts from other people coming in more people coming in uh, people from the from the startup days leaving because they want to join another startup because they just need to get that creative feeling back again so that was an interesting interesting 
stage to see actually and what was your biggest challenge there uh, uh, if you're allowed to talk about it yeah yeah i can i can say a few things about it um well the challenge there was to to also find my own path in okay so this is this part of the company is actually established and we, we can we can steadily grow this into something more sustainable bigger money making part of it uh this is where you start to see procedures coming in milestones coming in commitments to customers coming in suppliers and so forth so you get into a quote quote regular company kind of thing and at the same time there was so much more to explore that uh, a portion of the day was filled with shaping a company and a portion of the day was filled with still being startupy and exploring things like a vehicle to grid uh with load balancing uh, all all those things that were that were a topic at the time um so splitting yourself between growing a company into a quote quote real company and and still keeping that start startup mojo for another portion of of the company going uh, that that's quite challenging because then you're then you're context switching all the time in, in your own head uh, and also in, in the actions that you undertake but mm -hmm. also trying to explain that inside the company because it's quite technology driven uh, and, and carrying out the strategy and the vision from the company with the technology in order to, to make that all happen. Um, that was quite a balancing act. Okay. And, and this then... is also the moment where I decided to start the, um, the MBA to, to better understand how a CFO looks at the world, how a CEO looks at the world, because technology is something that I've done all my life. So that's that's almost natural to me. So how do you then convey the message in such a dynamic environment to people that don't have your glasses on and, and look at the world in a different way? Is an MBA the way to do that? Mm. There's, there's a couple of ways to do it. it. So an MBA was something that was on my wish list forever. Uh, because I'm, I'm also a learner. I, I like to learn new things. Uh, and uh, I had my mindset of one day doing that. Uh, but it did help me, uh, to be honest. It did really help me to understand the world of the CFO, the world of the CEO, why they look at things in a certain way. Um, is there other ways to do it? Most, most likely, yes. Uh, but I, I choose to do it in this way. Yeah, because sometimes I'm, but it may be also because uh, of, of my background as a commercial engineer. So I already have a significant basis when it comes to the things that are being taught uh, in, in an MBA. But uh, quite often I have to say with the angel investments that I've done so far, hmm. I could have done an MBA. Then at that point I had learned how to make a discount and cash flow calculation. And mm. now I'm out of the money, but still don't know how to make a discounted cash flow calculation. Right. So, and I'm not one to say that an MBA is only learning how to make a discounted cash flow calculation, no. but when it comes to the practical stuff, uh, what you need is basically starting a business. Uh, would you suggest for people to, to do an MBA and then after that start a business or you would say no. something else? No. So uh, the way I did is I started my first business when I was 26. I started the MBA when I was, uh, I think, 44. Um, so in my opinion, an MBA makes sense if you've got a couple of year, years of work experience, potentially even entrepreneur experience on your belt 
uh, and then it all makes more sense to you. And I also started the MBA with a specific trajectory in mind because I wanted to, what I wanted to get out of the MBA is how I went into it. I, I did a modular executive MBA, so I choose the modules that sort of like fitted my needs to bring myself to a, I wouldn't say a different level, but a different level of understanding of my peers in the boardroom. So I, I started out as a COBOL programmer on a deck mini in 1988. So I, I worked my way through all the layers, if you will. Uh, and, and so I didn't start with a, with a very significant management or board experience or anything of the sort. So everything that I've learned in life, I usually learn by doing it wrong first time around and maybe even second time around. Um, then so, but then later on in life, after work experience, entrepreneurial experience, uh, a company that defaulted, um, that all, all that combined with the MBA made me a more complete professional in the boardroom, I think. And for peers, for, for peers that work for me to judge, of course, but but I I I think that that is actually true. Okay. Um, by the way, uh, if you still know Cobalt, I know that uh, you can make some money in there because uh, yeah. they're they're getting rarer and rarer as as programmers, yeah. and there are still some legacy uh, systems in, uh, especially in the financial industry. Yeah. When it comes to Cobalt, if I would basically now put you in front of a cobalt solution would you still be able to to to, to navigate your way around and, and solve problems or is it too far gone i think it's far gone but actually not so long ago i saw a listing uh, written in cobalt and i really still understood what, what it what it was intended to do so i, I can okay. really i can still read it uh, am i still proficient in it like i was back in the day no 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 no, no. so but i think if i really put my mind to it i can probably catch on to it Again, because I, I never really left the programming machine. I still program a little bit. Um, so I'm doing a little bit of Golang. I do a little bit of Python. Uh, and the reason for that is I enjoy coding too much to let it go altogether. And I use it to do prototyping. So I prototype something when I got a crazy idea, prototype a little bit, and then I hand it off to people that, that basically code every day uh, for a living. Uh, but I'm still, I'm still quite comfortable around a code, code editor. Um, and what it, what that brings me is that if you are talking to developers or you're talking to program uh, product owners or whatever else, the fact that you understand what they're doing and that you have lived their life and that you you basically can also help debug if need be um, gives you way more leverage with the technical team that you're trying to achieve something with. So I will probably try to hold on to that to that as long as possible. Um, so uh, it is really enjoyable to do. So and and it and it and it gives me that extra bit of leverage with the technical people that that are building the solution, whatever it is you're, you're building. Talking about that, some of the listeners may maybe business co-founders looking for a technical co-founder. Uh, what would your tips be for people uh, that are looking for technical co-founders or, or technical people uh, to join them and, and help them build out uh, that great idea or that, that validated idea that they have? Right. So, so my take on the matter would be pick somebody who actually understands what's going on. Don't, don't go for a CTO that just wants to manage people. So a technical co-founder really needs to understand the technology that you're trying to trying to work with and if you could also say that if he doesn't he or she doesn't understand the technology at day one they should at least be eager enough to that to dive in and understand or 
try to figure out other ways to do it. Um, but if you're if you're at the early stages and you're looking for a technical co-founder, make sure he or she really is technical and not just a textbook technical person. Hmm. Uh, because you know you know very well, Jeff, that if especially when you need to pivot or especially when you're looking for quick fixes or libraries or uh, tools that you might want to use or whatever else, if you don't understand that landscape, you're never you're never going to get there. And especially in the early days, uh, somebody who who has done it, who has lived through that 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 scene, is probably going to be more helpful to you. Yeah, although learning on the job is one part, but you have to have that uh, that basis when it comes to the groundwork. Um, I also quite often uh, give the advice that uh, as a business co-founder, do as much as possible by yourself. Uh, there are actually now so much non-code or low-code solutions out there that you can build your own MVP. And then I always say like, do do that first. And then of course it will break. And by the time you have, I don't know, a, a call center with, with, with 20 people working for you because it's, it's almost for you not possible to code that. And then at that point you go to a technical person and say like, hey, we have this problem. It breaks here, it breaks there. And we could and save up 95% of the people in the call center if you just be able to code this, this, this. Then at that point, in my point of view, technical people get interested because then they know if they code something, it's definitely going to be used. And yeah. uh, and then they say like, oh, and they look at your screen and say, you know what, step aside, let me solve this for you. Yeah. And, that's, and that's the hook, uh, I think, that you have to create as a business co-founder to get that technical people on board. Totally true. And um, so another thing that I, uh, in, in the in the startup scene, I'm, I'm totally with you on, on this. And the, um, what I see in the, in the corporate world is that they, they all have the, the urge to disrupt or be different. Right. And, and what you see happening is then they, uh, they start hiring a CTO or, or somebody with technical knowledge and they, they are looking for somebody who's already worked in that field before. And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes you can make if you want to re if you really want to disrupt your industry, hire from outside your industry. Because you need something with a different you need somebody with a different mindset. You don't need somebody who's done this before and is gonna come work for you and, and change fifteen percent of the things that are that are happening because he or she just have a different vision on, on how to execute. You need something with a different pair of eyes that's going to ask the question that nobody asks anymore in that industry, but also brings outside knowledge from another industry that might, that, that might actually lead to something. Right? So if you really want to disrupt from a, from a corporate space, um, hiring somebody who doesn't know anything about the industry that you're in might be very beneficial. Feels counterintuitive, but it's really going to help. And if, if you look at my resume, I've been I've been all over the place. I've been in, in many different industries on purpose, um, and uh, I, I I do see myself using bits and pieces from all the industries that I've worked in on any gig that I go into going forward, and 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 that that has been beneficial. Let's put it let's put it that way. Talking about industry, this is a nice uh, bridge and handover. You're currently the Chief Technology and Innovation Officer of Versa, which is yep. a, a travel startup or company. Yep. Um, we're already like almost two years in, or at least one and a half years in a, a COVID situation. 
Yep. And a travel solution startup. I imagine that that was not the easiest uh, ride uh, so far. So can you, in broad strokes, tell what you did before uh, COVID hit, what you did while COVID was hitting, and what you're doing right now? Yep. So um, the, we, did a, we did a major pilot with a large European airline, which is not to be disclosed. Uh, successfully, and we would commercially launch the uh, the luggage tracker in uh, May uh, last year, and that didn't happen. Obviously, um, I remember coming back from my team in Poland uh, on on a lot plane, and when we're descending into Amsterdam, they were announcing that the first COVID uh, victim was detected in Warsaw at that at the very moment. And I remember walking through uh, Schiphol Airport with my bag uh, on the way to the, to the parking lot, calling my partner and saying, we need to pivot into cargo because luggage is going to be bogged down for nobody knows how long. Uh, I, I didn't have a glass ball, but I, everything that I could sense is that there, will, there would be a lockdown and travel would be banned for, for whatever else. Um, so And we did. So we pivoted into cargo. We created a new tracker with additional sensors that were not available on the luggage tracker. Uh, ventured into cargo uh, and are on the verge of going in there quite big with a couple of big customers uh, that have tested the, um, the the new tracker. Uh, so we 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 took all the the capabilities that we've built into the luggage tracker and brought that onto the cargo space, and that generated a lot of traction. There was already interest from the cargo space in the luggage tracker, but it was specifically designed for luggage, so. It would do a couple of things okay-ish in the cargo space, but it wasn't targeted at that. So now we created a V2 that's actually targeted for cargo. And uh, that's, that's that's kicking around uh, big time. That's a great uh, insight you had when you're walking at Schiphol uh, Amsterdam Airport uh, when the first COVID case uh, was announced. It was already, uh, it, it was, so that was the first in Poland, right? So globally, yeah. it was already sort of a pandemic. So it, it was not based on, on, one, on one case. Mm-hmm. How long did it take for you to pivot from a luggage tracker to the to cargo tracker? Um, so mentally, it didn't take long, um, but building hardware is always tedious. So building hardware took me roughly half a year to redesign uh, the PCB, adding more sensors, finding the components that you need, doing the new casing, having the IP86 uh, being a certification, all that kind of fun stuff. Uh, but platform-wise, we we were ready to onboard uh, other trackers anyway, so that was designed that way. So luckily, um, so we didn't have to redo the platform. We had to do some alterations to the firmware uh, running on the tracker because there was more sensors on board. But we could lean on previous efforts from the from the luggage space. So I would say, all in all, it took me roughly around six to eight months to get a fully operational luggage tracker, uh, or sorry, cargo tracker. Um, Ready to be to be uh, promoted and marketed and tested and, and POCs being run with and so forth. Um, so and and the team was actually great. They they also understood the why, and um, they caught on to the the cargo way of thinking quite quick. So that was really helpful. It sounds like you always had unlimited runway, but I can imagine that adding on 
another one and a half to two years to revenue could really strain your uh, your runway. How did that discussion go, and 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 how did you solve that? Yeah. So the um, so we, we we went back to the shareholders and we were like, this is happening. Uh, we could either hit the pause button and wait until uh, luggage kicks in again, or we could pivot into cargo. And we had a we had a a rough sketch of where this would go, how that would look like. Um, and uh, they all believed in the idea, and they they provided us with a runway to um, to actually make this happen. So there was so you, for, it starts with having the idea and having the plan and having the vision on how to do this. Also being backed up with the interest we already had from the cargo space when we were doing the luggage tracker, um, some LOIs uh, floating around, and 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 the transparency that we had towards the uh, shareholders from day one also. The good, the bad, and the ugly in the luggage space was always shared. That wasn't an easier ride to get from, from zero to where we were at that moment either. Um, so we had a lot of trust and leverage with the, with the existing shareholders to get this done. And uh, so, so that, that also helped because you're right. You, you can have a great idea. You can have a great pivot. But if there's no runway, um, that, will, that will die nevertheless. Uh, that's great to hear. It's great to hear that you were able to, uh, to build a trust in your head investors and, and and shareholders that were able to to foot that bill and and were sharing your uh, your vision and the extended runway so what's the most valuable advice that's ever given to you um embrace the negative comments so it's never easy to hear people say that they don't like what you're doing and you, you and even also me, I, I start to get defensive feelings on the inside, uh, and and the urge to verbalize those. Uh, but really take it on the chin, chew on it, sleep over it, and then be 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 truthful to yourself. People are not out there to to bash you normally, uh, but if if they dislike what you're doing or they have good arguments that it is not really what you what you yourself think it's going to be. Take it to heart, because even though it sounds harsh, the intentions are correct. And if you really are open to listen to it and, and embrace those those quote quote negative comments, that will that will actually help you forward. That's great advice. What's something that's not a secret, but most people don't know about you? <laughs> Um, I I don't know, but I, but I think the, the fact that I went through a default with a company is something that not everybody knows about me, which uh, combined with the MBA really shaped uh, the way I look at things and and the signs that I see on, on uh, writing on the wall, if you will, based on based on those experiences is things that's probably things people don't don't it's not in my resume. But uh, I lived through it. Uh, I solved it in the end, and and it, it was it was not the most pleasant time of my life, but it was definitely one of the, the the times where I learned learned a lot about people, learned a lot about how things work, how the world works, how people look at things, and and yeah. So I think that's something that people probably don't. Not everybody knows about me. I know you know, um, but not everybody knows. I I don't make a secret out of it. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and I'm happy to share the experiences uh, that I went through and, and also the learnings that I took from it. Um, but that would be one of the, the secrets hid, hiding in plain sight, I would say. Okay, thank you very much. I want to thank you for your valuable insights and your sharing of your lessons learned in startups. And for the listeners, although the rating system of podcasts is hideous, if you like the Maya Cooper series, you can rate this podcast with the five stars and motivation for the makers. Thanks to Mizuho Crowdbrain in Hong Kong for being the venue sponsor for this episode. And thanks to the Kopi Ventures for making this series possible. If you have any suggestions and guests, please reach out to us. Uh, we're happy to invite other people too for this podcast. This is Jeffrey Brewer. Go out and build something meaningful. Thank you, Remy. Thanks, Jeff, for having me.